You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. This is episode number 192. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening <clears throat> to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 20 2000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show. <clears throat> Today, we're talking about some big and trending news. Hemp-based compounds may help prevent COVID from entering human cells. Harvard with an Ivy League method to determine impairment. An update on Quebec's vaccine requirement to purchase alcohol and cannabis. Earl Perlmutter to retire and what that means for the industry. This Bud's for you. Budweiser backs out of partnership with Tilray. Gavin Newsom gets behind tax reform and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for those full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you may get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She's a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Her superpowers are overcoming obstacles and challenges with unstoppable energy. She's also an amazing daughter, friend, and activist. What's your headline today, Nicole? Good morning, everybody, and happy hump day. My headline comes out of canx.co.uk, and it is a new method to flag cannabis impairment found at Harvard. And I'll, spoiler alert, it's not comedy or food-based. Well, researchers have reportedly found a new method to identify those who are performance as being high or impaired on THC, the main psychoactive compound in cannabis. Harvard researchers came up with a potentially highly effective, pardon the pun, technique called functional near-infrared spectrometry, spectrometry, oh my gosh, spectroscopy, or FNIRS, a form of non-invasive brain imaging procedure that accurately detects the individuals with THC impairment. So I can only imagine the cops rolling around with some like helmet to put on you to see if you're high. But as more states in the U.S. are opening up for legal cannabis use, the authors of this study found an important and distinguishing distinguishment between impairment and mild intoxication from THC in order to make roads safer. The lead author, uh, Joe 
Jody Gilman, an investigator for the Center of Addiction Medicine, or MGH, and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, said, Our research represents a novel detection for impairment testing in the field. Our goal was to determine if cannabis impairment could be detected from activity in the brain on an individual level. This is a critical issue because the breathalyzer type of approach will not work in detecting cannabis impairment, which makes it very difficult to objectively assess impairment from THC during a traffic stop. During a traffic stop. The study and the results. Okay, so 169 people underwent the brain imaging procedure after having been given oral THC or a placebo. Those who reported intoxication after having taken THC showed an increase of oxygenated hemoglobin concentration, or HBO, in comparison to those who reported low or no intoxication. Senior, uh, senior author and principal investigator Eden Evans, found, uh, the director, or founder and the director for Center of Addiction Medicine, says... Identification of acute impairment from THC intoxication through uh, portable brain imaging could be a vital tool in the hands of police officers in the field. The accuracy of this method was confirmed by the fact that impairment determined by machine learning modules by only the information of uh, FNIRS matched the self-report and clinical assessment of the impairment of the 76 per, up to 76% of the time. Companies in developing breathalyzer devices are only the measure of the exposure to cannabis, but not the impairment from cannabis. So this is actually really interesting. I think that this kind of thing is probably going to be the best bet in that conversation in regards to impairment. I know we've had this conversation a thousand times. Uh, Jason Beck seems to think that he could smoke all the weed in the world and never be impaired. I have friends that if you give them one toke, you're like, don't let them talk and, and walk at the same time sometimes. So I, I disagree um, to say that impairment is not a thing under cannabis, but there definitely are varying levels. And I think it'll be really important for us to be able to see what impairment looks like rather than just what quote unquote intoxication would sound like or, you know, be breathalyzed as. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. When I read this article, I was wondering if they're going to start using this at the cannabis cups to judge. Like how high are you? <laughs> right. Good. They're going to judge who, who's the highest in the room? Yeah. I mean, isn't that what it's about? Yeah. I would like to see them repeat this study using people who are using medical cannabis to see, you know, they, they, those who are not feeling intoxicated, see if their hemoglobin oxygenation is different. That's, that's, I think that would be a, a good follow-up study to do. Uh, 100%. Because some of the folks I've worked with, like folks that have like MS and stuff, they take in massive amounts of cannabinoids and don't seem impaired. Like any analgesic, I, I find that cannabis goes to the ailment. Like if you're in pain, especially neurological pain, it seems to want to work on that more than it wants to make you high. So that that's a great point. And even as we're talking about the dosing issue across the nation, it's like, Patients need more cannabinoids. If you have a real reason for using cannabis, you should be allowed to use more cannabinoids and have a different judge level of impairment judging. Does anybody have any friends at Harvard? Can we uh, come volunteer our brains to participate? I would so strap into one of these things and, and play the, the whatever whatever game that they have. They have some simulations that you participate in. Um, I would I would absolutely volunteer for this study. <laughs> no kidding. We, can, we, can we just want to play games and be high. We've got Joshua Krasny up from the audience. Joshua, did you want to uh, weigh in on Nicole's headline? Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me up, Susan. Appreciate that. And hello, Nicole. Um, I think it's a really interesting headline. I had not seen this yet, so thank you for um, reading this, Nicole. I just wanted to mention that, um, you know, this kind of technology has been 
looked at for quite some time in cannabis. I actually was working with one of our big sponsors, Shimatsu, quite a few years ago, probably three or four years ago. And we were actually using this technology or trying to use this technology for a different avenue, which would have been more of like for professional athletes that have injuries and concussions or other medical cannabis patients to monitor their brain function and activity before using cannabinoids and cannabis and then monitor it after. So it's interesting to kind of see that's flipped around from what we were looking at it to um, from a you know positive way to help people to back to this kind of red light stop kind of thing. So I just wanted to weigh in on that, that there is other potential for that's other than just that. And Josh, thank you so much for your insight on that. Josh is the founder of the Cannabis Science Conference. And if you guys remember a couple years back, he was actually on the cover. I want to say, was it MJ Biz or was it MJ Venture wearing the helmet? Um, what magazine yes, was it? Yes, it was, it was Marijuana Venture. And that was, I think, one of the 40 under 40s. Um, but yeah, like I, I would guess that was probably 2017, 2018. And, yeah. you know, we were actually um, doing some prelim- pre- preliminary studies um, actually with Tracy Ryan from Canakids. We were working with her daughter, Sophie, to, like I said, monitor the brain function and activity before use and then also after use. So Joshua, in the article, it said it was only 76% effective. Is that what you guys found? Well, you know, we didn't get quite to the, you know, Harvard study kind of ironclad, if you will. We were just kind of tinkering around with it here and there. And then, you know, how things get, you get busy, you know, your schedules don't align. So that is something I definitely would love to pick back up and look into deeper. But it definitely was, you were seeing differences in the in the brain. And really, I thought that this could be great for any neurological conditions that people are using cannabis for, because obviously the goal is to, you know, use cannabis to improve that neurological function. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining us. How you doing, brother? It's, it's, it's good to have you back on stage with us. And, um, one thing, did you say just one of the 40s, uh, 40 under 40s that you did? Um, I think I was in that the twice, yeah, but that's you know, neither here nor there. <laughs> great. But, uh, but no, it's great being with you guys today. It's been a long, long time since I hit that unmute button and was on a stage, but uh, I, I felt inclined to jump in and just offer that. Thank you so much, Nicole, and thank you, Joshua, for jumping up. We've reached time on that headline. This is this is an ongoing story, and be so great if those of us uh, that have a high tolerance for cannabis uh, would not be risking our driver's license uh, if we consumed cannabis, because my THC level is always up there. Um, but up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes find him on tedx or at one of his cannavision events but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the state of cannabis news hour what's your headline today rico what's happening everybody uh, this morning my story is coming from my denver news channel 7's sarah dewberry uh, vaccine appointments surge after quebec's uh, Quebec requires vaccine to purchase cannabis and alcohol. This is a follow-up to my story from last Thursday. So somebody get Joseph Robinette Biden on the phone right now. Our neighbors to the great white north have cracked the code. And if President Biden's still trying to get vaccination numbers up, maybe he should take a cue from Quebec and threaten to take citizens' weed and booze away. That's right. And follow-up from my story from last week. The Canadian province reported the next day appointments for a first jab quadrupled, going from previous daily average of 1,500 to 6,000. Literally hours after we reported on unverified rumors, Canadian government officials were going to take away access to dispensaries and liquor stores. Quebec 
Health officials announced via press release residents would be required to present a vaccine passport to enter Société de Alcouz de Québec, uh, the go- uh, official government liquor store, and the Société Ke- Québécois du Cannabis, uh, official government weed distributor and dispensary stores, uh, beginning on January 18th in Québec. You can only buy weed from government distributors, uh, so it was either get the shot, dig through your phone, and hope your old plug ain't changed the number, or you were just going to take that L. In an official government press release, Minister of Health and uh, Social Services, Christian Dubé, not to be confused with yesterday's USDA DEA agent, Mike Duby, stated, we are aware that all the sacrifices asked of Quebecers uh, are not easy, but they are necessary. And I thank the population for their collaboration. We must do everything to limit the impact on our staff and our very fragile health system. Uh, we must therefore reduce the number of cases and limit hospitalizations as much as possible. I'm counting on all of you to be extremely vigilant over the next few weeks and to protect yourself with the booster dose as soon as it becomes available. Hmm. Listen, I'm 100% seeing this as unnecessary overreach by the Canadian government. However, I also 100% see only having government-run dispensaries as overreach as well. While I don't openly promote folks risking their own freedom by getting their trap on, I know that if I was in this situation, there's no way that I would have Trudeau OG as my only option for getting what I need to get. I also have zero doubt in my mind, zero doubt in my mind, that if this shit was to be implemented on U.S. soil, Equivalencies would no longer be false, and we'd finally bear witness to the mythical left-wing insurrection Republicans and Fox News have been warning us about since Obama took office. Congrats to the Quebec uh, Health Ministry on the vaccination surge and everything else, but um, this ain't what freedom looks like. This is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad in North America and proud smoker of civilian California weed, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan. I think it's it's sad that, you know, they tried the carrot and now the stick and the stick seems to be the most effective thing that can be done. I agree with Rico. I think it's I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong. Um, You're number one, you're 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 making cannabis and alcohol equivalent. And that is not true. That's cannabis is medicine for a lot of people when pharmaceuticals do not work and to state you got to get one medicine or else you can't get this other medicine is just wrong, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm all with you, Rico. I think this, this is overreach and just wrong. I'm just glad Jason's actually not here today. You know, uh, the last time I was in Quebec, I mean, it's just such a beautiful place and they love to party. Um, I was there for a... Uh, Metallica concert, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that um, the the uh, amount of uh, vaccinations increase because um, you know I think the stores, the government-owned stores there, they have like longer hours and. Like I said, they love to party. So we've we've got Casey Murdoch up from the audience, aka Pot Pastor. Did you want to weigh in on this headline, Casey? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's overreach. That's the opposite of freedom, even though I'm vaccinated and I believe in the vaccine. But uh, the study just came out showing that cannabis helps fight COVID. So it is medicine like we all know in this room. So it's completely opposite of moving forward. 
Absolutely, and we're going to cover that up soon. Uh, we are at time, but uh, El Thibault, I'm sorry if I'm just butchering your name. Uh, you've got 10 seconds if you want to weigh in. Absolutely. So as you can tell from the last name, I am French-Canadian. I am Québécoise. I am from Montreal. And um, I'm fully vaccinated as well. However, I do think that it's an outreach from the government to to not allow people that aren't vaccinated to get their cannabis or their alcohol. They At this point, they either have to declare it not an essential or declare that they are taking essentials away from non-vaccinated people. How cool is this to have somebody in the audience that can weigh in, a man on the street or woman on the street? Let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. Amazing. Thank you for that headline, Rico, and everybody for chiming in. Um, and up next, we have D. Sugar Copland Easley. She's an industry chef, consultant, and advocate, and the co chairman of Los Angeles Regional Reentry Product Partnership uh, Education. What do you have for us today, Sugar? Good morning. Uh, thank you for that awesome introduction, Nicole. Good morning, fellow correspondents, super fans, and audience. My headline today is from Marijuana Moments by Kyle Jager. It's a fairly long article. We'll hit some highlights, but more importantly, the subject of this article is in the audience here to answer a couple of questions, and we are excited to have him. And it reads, Normal's federal marijuana lobbyist departs after five years advancing reform on Capitol Hill. When it comes to advocating for marijuana reform on Capitol Hill, Justin Streckel of Normal is one of the most widely recognized faces of the movement, putting in the hours to champion the cause of cannabis consumers and convince lawmakers to get on board. But after five years, the chapter of his career at Normal's political director has come to a close. While he will continue to work to advance the cause in a different capacity, Normal will be getting a new lobbyist to fight for an end to federal cannabis prohibition in Congress. As a, lob as a federal lobbyist for Normal, he's demonstrated how having a voice directly whispering and occasionally shouting in the ears of policymakers and their staff can help affect real change. He states that I took the responsibility of being the federal lobbyist and political director for Normal incredibly serious as a way to harness the decades and decades of organizing that has been done by activists in as pointed, as tenacious a way as possible to translate that into federal policy reform. You know, when he started, Donald Trump had just been elected president. Republicans controlled the Congress. Prohibitionist Jeff Sessions was soon confirmed as attorney general and moved to rescind Obama's Obama-era guidance that offered legal cannabis states some level of protection. Although still federally legal, there has been enormous progress since Streckel took the job in as in a historic vote, the U.S. House of Representatives approved a bill to end prohibition in 2020, although the Marijuana Opportunity and Reinvestment and Expungement Act later stalled in the Senate. It's really a testament to the fact that this issue, which does not have well-organized money behind it, which does not have traditional institutional uh, organizational power in Washington, D.C., how far a scrappy bunch of activists can really push the issue. I appreciate that. Uh, Morgan Fox will be replacing Streckel at form at Normal. Uh, he has years of experience running communications at other leading cannabis groups like Marijuana Policy Project and most recently NCIA, and has a wide range of experiences to draw from in the marijuana space. Fox said his predecessor left him a great foundation, and he intends to build upon his work primarily in making sure that Normal is a leader and has a strong seat at the table when it comes to cannabis. 
policy reform, both comprehensive and incremental. He's very excited to jump into this next legislative session and start tackling appropriations and bringing the more act to a full vote in the House in the coming months. Streckel, for his part, isn't leaving the cannabis movement. He's soon to be starting a new political action committee and focused on advancing the legalization fight through elections. And he is here to share with his his future in the cannabis industry. I want to welcome Justin Streckel to the stage. Hey, thanks so very much for having me. I'm I'm really excited for for what's to come now um, with the new project I'm setting up, and I've I've been you know deeply appreciative of of all of the work that so many have done around the country that made it so that way I was able to be heard during my tenure as as normal's federal lobbyist, and I did my best to focus on the the aspects of public policy reform to restrict the ability for discrimination and incarceration regarding uh, simple possession. Thank you, Justin. Justin, uh, if you had to highlight three things in your career with normal, what would your favorite moments be? Oh, um, that's a really interesting. Uh, I haven't I've been asked to get the top three. So the, the, the top one by far is the, the successful vote on the Moore Act. Uh, you know, it already December 2020 may feel like a million years ago. Um, but, you know, being able to see that a chamber of Congress took up leg- and successfully passed legislation and prohibition after 80, um, 83 years in, in effect was, you know, the first real benchmark that, that we could say we've hit the inflection point on the issue. And the fact that that bill simultaneously ends prohibition and reinvests 100% of the revenue generated of their of the minor 5% excise tax um, into facilitating expungements, promoting small businesses, promoting diversity programs through the SBA, uh, and, and, and really incentivizing states to promote local and diversely owned businesses in this emerging industry. Um, that, you know, we, we had a couple of proxy votes on ending prohibition through the Blumenauer McClintock appropriations amendment. Um, and I think that the appropriations process is a really critical way that, that we need to influence cannabis policy reform. And I mean, you know, just in, in general, um, you know, my, my time at normal working with activists from around the country who, you know, looked around and, uh, at all the problems in their community, and they decided to to stand up and and fight to reform marijuana policy uh, in their states and communities. You know, just trying to be a good resource to them and working with them, and um, you know, helping them to to be as successful as possible. Justin, thank you so much for all that you do, all that you did, and all that you will do. And thank you for coming in on the State of Cannabis News Hour. We've got to keep smoking the news. We miss you, Justin. Have a great one. We miss you already. Yeah, man. We'll continue to follow your adventures wherever you go, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Rico. Absolutely. And yeah, no, I I should be launching the new pack within the next uh, month or two. And so, so keep in touch with that. And there's going to be a lot of collaboration um, and for opportunities with other groups. So looking forward to keep working together with, uh, with so many new people. Thanks, Justin. Absolutely. We hope to have you back, Justin. Thank you. You got it. All right. Thank you. This is Thank D you, Justin. Sugar. <laughs> this is D. Sugar Coughlin Easley reporting live for the State of Cannabis News Hour with an amazing, amazing lobbyist, Justin 
It's Jacko. All right. Much love. All right. So up next, this dope mama is one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history. The CEO of award-winning Original Breeders League 2021 MJ BizCon's coveted Golden Bong Influencer of the Year winner. And most importantly, one of the dopest moms on the planet. Coming to the stage next is Priscilla Agoncillo. What you got for us today? Oof, that fire intro, Rico. That is an honor coming from the dopest dad. Uh, My article today, I've got a really great juicy story for you all. Ascend Wellness cries foul as Mad Men calls quits on a $73 million cannabis deal. In December, New York's recently appointed cannabis regulators passed their first major resolution involving individual companies signing off on a multi-million dollar deal between current medical cannabis license holder MedMen and incoming investor Ascend Wellness Holdings. Now, MedMen has said they're calling off the deal, backing out of the agreement that would give Ascend Wellness majority control of MedMen's New York operations with a $73 million investment. MedMen is essentially challenging the regulator's authority and ignoring the regulation of the state's medical program by refusing to close the deal, said Ascend Wellness. Ascend Wellness is a multi-state, vertically integrated cannabis operator with assets in Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. Uh, They're preparing for their entry into the New York marketplace. So pending regulatory approval, the group expected to take over 86.7% share of MedMen's New York's operations this month. MedMen initially filed for approval for the change of ownership. Uh, But once the state's adult use legalization was passed on March 31st, the department representative stopped advancing decisions that would alter the medical cannabis program, saying additional changes should wait for the incoming Office of Cannabis Management and its control board. The Cannabis Control Board conditionally approved MedMen's New York ownership change on December 16th. The representatives of MedMen allegedly informed us in wellness that they were calling off the deal, saying the conditions of the agreement were not satisfied before the contractual deadline of December. December 31st. New York regulators painted a different picture. They said both companies were notified prior to January 1st that the Cannabis Control Board's approval of this change in ownership was approved uh, in December 16, and it was final. A press release from MedMen then came out on January 3rd, confirmed the company had announced its termination of the agreement and didn't provide further detail. So Ascend Wellness struck an initial deal with MedMen. Uh, when they were cash-strapped in December 2020. Uh, so now they're backing out of that. Uh, they, What they did was they uh, funded the business operating costs of about $2.25 million, in addition to putting in another $2.5 million to begin growing their cultivation capacity and several million more to secure the deal. The company went public in May and took out an, its own $210 million loan to finance what it expected to be an imminent need to build capacity in New York. So MedMen is yet again in another lawsuit. If they were allowed to back out of their contract, they will have to pay all that money back to Sun Wellness. This is Priscilla reporting on the latest spilt tea about MedMen for the State of Cannabis News Hour. MedMen going MedMen. I just want to say top three worst names for a cannabis company, MedMen, Skittles, Statehouse. Okay, how many times have we seen MedMen in the news and playing these kind of deals? Like, I feel like this has to be at least the third time. I remember with Coastal and the parent company. It's like, dude, I'm like, have to go pee after drinking all this tea over here. <laughs> exactly. It's like six or seven times. It's crazy. Yeah, MedMen is trash. <laughs> I think we should start a Boof Awards. And, you know, we could also talk about Boof Cannabis Companies, which we can definitely award MedMen as one of them. 
I think we should have a friendly wager uh, on the over-under how many times we're going to see them in the news on some negative tea uh, before the end of 2022. I'm in on that. <laughs> I'm going to say 62. I'm going to say 62. Totally in. Totally in. These are just the opinions of the news correspondents and not of the State of Cannabis News Hour. Nor do we encourage gambling. If MedMen calls, don't answer. Just fuck all those companies and every one of them like them. I said friendly gamble. I'm not putting money on it. I just want to have fun and see who can get the closest to the to the hole, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Was that a just for tip? No, that's a toilet. <laughs> flushing them. Yeah, she flushed them. That was flushed. Uh, well, yeah, what kind of tip is that, Trigger? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. power it squeaks after the toilet that gets creepy um all right so up next thank you so much for that headline priscilla um and up next we have gretchen gailey gretchen is our own washington insider and the founder of panoptic strategies what do you have for us today gretchen uh good afternoon i have a feisty pitbull who won't shut up stop anyway all right um Today, my headline is coming from American banker uh, Perlmutter, driving force behind cannabis banking bill to retire. Uh, Representative Ed Perlmutter of Colorado, one of Congress's loudest advocates for cannabis banking legislation, will not seek re-election in 2022. Perlmutter, 68, is the latest House Democrat to announce retirement plans in recent weeks. A member of the House Financial Services Committee, Perlmutter has been a driving force behind the push to allow federally regulated financial institutions to work with cannabis firms in states that have legalized the substance. Perlmutter is the 26th House Democrat so far to bow out of politics before the 2022 midterm election. He was reelected in 2020 with more than 59 percent of the vote and his congressional district, Colorado 7th, was considered a relatively safe Democratic seat but the coming midterm elections are expected to be historically tough for President Biden's party. After much thought and consideration, I have decided not to run for re-election, Perlmutter said in a press release. I've never shied away from a challenge, but it's time for me to move on and explore other opportunities. Perlmutter was the author and sponsor of the Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act, first passed by the bipartisan House majority in 2019 and several times since as both a standalone bill and as part of a must-pass defense spending bill. But the Safe Banking Act has yet to face a Senate vote. Once blocked by former Senate Banking Chair Mike Crapo of uh, Idaho, the legislation has taken a backseat since the 2020 elections in favor of Democrats' push for broader cannabis legalization. Few in Washington today expect broader legalization to succeed, while Senate filibuster rules require the most legislation gets at least 60 votes to pass. If Democrats cannot accomplish broad cannabis legalization, they may fall back on a narrower bill that clears the way for banks to work with cannabis firms, analysts say. Pearl Mutter's announcement said his office was proud to have elevated the public safety risk of the cash-only cannabis industry here in Colorado and across the country. Uh, I look upon his announced retirement as a wonderful thing uh, for the cannabis industry. Uh, before you all jump up and down on me about, you know, another Dem saying bye-bye, uh, what makes this such a good thing is that this is a man now who can be dangerous. He can do whatever the F he wants, and no one can complain. He is retiring, and so he has the ability now to push safe banking all day and all night uh, next year, which he has said that he is going to do. Uh, there has been talk around the Hill that he is going to attach this to anything and everything they can find. House leadership is on board with him doing this. Um, and so the Senate is going to have to shut up or put up on safe banking again. 
And uh, rumor is that works are in the uh, in the in the works right now for uh, Cory Booker to shut his mouth and let this go through. Uh, this scratching for State of Canvas News Hour. I am just so curious about what he's got up his sleeve for next. He probably got a job with a big cannabis company. Well, I, I, I think why fight yep. a battle if you don't have to? I, I know a number of these guys. You're 68. If Why take on another horrible uh, re-election? Uh, being a member in the House is not a fun process getting re-elected. Basically, you get re-elected in November and you start raising money again for the next election. It's a kind of a pain in the ass job. Um, but when it comes to safe banking, I think this is the best hope for this thing going through now is that he can push it any way that he wants. And he has no worries about who he's going to piss off. Absolutely. That's thank you for your perspective, Gretchen. I'm glad that you covered that story. Uh, we passed the half hour mark, so we're going to do a really quick relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's do it. She's a pot-loving PhD pushing for cannabis policy for everyday people and an outside-the-box activist who remains optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Up next is Manika Mahajan. What you got for us this morning, Manika? Good morning. Thank you so much for that introduction, Rico. I'm covering regulatory news in New Jersey today. MJ Biz Daily staff reported this week, or reported last week, uh, that New Jersey has chosen traceability software provider Metric for seed to sale tracking of its state licensed cannabis program. Metric stands for Marijuana Enforcement Tracking, Reporting, and Compliance. And we know Metric well here in California. New Jersey's five member regulatory commission unanimously approved a six year, $390,000 contract with Metric. And the company, Metric, has been scooping up state traceability contracts across the country. Now, including New Jersey, Metric has contracts in 16 states plus Washington, D.C. Jeff Brown, the executive director of New Jersey's Cannabis Regulatory Commission, said of Metric, quote, The system would allow regulators to ensure regulatory compliance, assist with accurate reporting of sales data, prevent sale to underage consumers, and prevent adulteration of legal cannabis substances with harmful substances. For operators, it's important to remember that metric is a paper pushing and data entry obligation. So this provider tells people in its training that the system itself does not ensure compliance and it is possible for licensees to record activities that are not allowed. And for the government, metric provides data. Regulators can monitor transactions, testing results, and look at the size and movements within the recorded supply chain. It does not, however, accurately report total commercial cannabis activity. The data set is limited to what operators report, what licensed operators report. And as operators in New Jersey, it's important to keep in mind that it's not a system that serves you. It's there to serve the state and can require significant labor and resources on businesses' part. So to get New Jersey operators uh, thinking about some of the challenges that they'll be facing soon, some of the criticisms of metric include that it is not user-friendly, the learning curve is incredibly steep, And there's no undo button. So when you make a mistake, it's really hard to find and correct it. So New Jersey operators, buckle up and get ready for the metric ride. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. 
Back to you, Rico. Menica, I was surprised yep. at the, the price tag. A six-year contract was less than $400,000. Do you know, is that, I thought that they were making a ton of money out for this. That surprised me as well, and I don't have a comparison figure at this moment, but I could look into it. So a lot of that price point is based off of the way that the state goes into the structure. Um, Some states actually create a product that comes with the tags independently. So like in the state of California, the tags are free when you order them. Um, The tracking software tags, you have plastic ones for plants, you have paper ones for packages. Um, And so when you buy those in some states, it's a very low processing fee. Like in the state of Colorado, it's uh, $52 per license per year or per month. So it's a very low uh, fee, but what you actually get is the cost of the tags. The plant tags are 29 cents or 33 cents, I can't remember. And the paper tags are 29 cents or something. I haven't bought them in a while. Um, So the the tag purchases is actually where you get um, a good lot of the money. So when you find a really low contract price, odds are the uh, fees are actually going to be being pushed off to the retailers or the cultivators in their tag purchasing requirements because it won't be a part of the contract. Um, And I just want to say I'm really glad that you named what metric stands for for marijuana enforcement tracking compliance software. Uh, it originally was called MITS, um, M-I-T-S, but they were sued by MIT, the university, uh, for copyright and trademark infringement, which I thought was really fun. So they had to change the name of their company. It used to be marijuana enforcement tracking software, which made a little bit more sense. And it wasn't just like a bunch of words jammed into something. Uh, but they changed their name to Metric. And Metric originally was a software that was developed to track um, plants. Uh, it was originally used, uh, Dole Pineapple was able to prove utilizing a metric-based platform that... Um, um, it wasn't financially responsible to grow pineapples in Hawaii anymore. So because of m- metric or MITS at the time, um, agricultural programs have learned what kind of cost points were uh, necessary to be able to explain the cost of the land and all of the, the pieces. So metric was never really intended to be some sort of really serious tracking software. It was something that was originally intended just for agricultural-based processes. Um, but the real price and the reason why the contract was so cheap there is because the price will get put on to the, um, actual con- the retailers and growers. Thank you so much, Nicole. That was really interesting. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. And thank you, Menica. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. So this time we are for sure going to get to Liz. I, Liz, we have uh, we meant to go to Liz a while ago, so super sorry about that. Back circling around. We're stoners. We missed it. Uh, Liz Rogan, cannabis educator, brand strategist, and the healthcare consultant and founder of Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County, and one of our co-hosts and co-producers here. Liz, what do you have for us? Hey, everyone. Thank you so much. Happy Wednesday. Um, thanks for joining us. I wasn't sure if my pinners were dosed over here or something. I keep <laughs> putting up different links. So <laughs> the story today I bring to you comes from Mid- MJ Biz Daily by Matt Lamers or Lammers. The headline reads Tilray, um, Budweiser Maker, AB InBev, and Cannabis Beverage Partnership. So in a regulatory filing early Monday, AB InBev, who is the world's leading brewery, and Tilray, which is Canada's leading cannabis producer by market share have ended their partnership. I want to note that the partnership was formed with them before Tilray merged with Afria. So AB InBev and Tilray first announced their partnership in late 2018, shortly after Canada legalized adult use cannabis. At the time they announced their arrangement, Budweiser maker AB InBev and Tilray each pledged to invest $50 million and retain 50% ownership in the joint venture called Fluent Beverage Company. 
For InBev, the joint venture is spearheaded by Labatt Breweries of Canada and Toronto-based High Park Company, which is a Tilray subsidiary that developed and distributed cannabis goods. So Fluent Beverages will now operate wholly as a wholly owned subsidiary of Labatt and Tilray will serve as their co-manufacturing partner. According to Labatt Brewery spokesman, we do not expect these changes to have a significant impact on Fluent's day-to-day operations as it remains focused on commercializing CBD-infused non-alcohol beverages in Canada. Tilray says, we retain the manufacturing equipment associated with CBD and THC beverages, obtained a royalty-free, perpetual, and worldwide license to utilize the technology related to the manufacture of CBD and THC beverages, which was developed by the joint venture and negotiated by a co-manufacturing agreement to manufacture CBD beverages on behalf of Fluent. So they both walk away with something pretty decent um, to have. The partners had pledged to launch CBD-infused drinks on the Canadian market as early as December 2019, but overall beverage sales have been underwhelming in Canada. Um, Derek Prentice, who is a Toronto from Toronto-based craft beverage maker, the Proper Cannabis Co., said infused beverage space is a little stagnant right now, and consumers go to his gummies chocolate Basically, things looking for portability. He says throwing a can of something in your pocket isn't easy, and it doesn't stay cold. So the data does back his statement. According to an analytics firm uh, in Canada, sales by quarter and sales by category in the fourth quarter of 2021 compared to the previous quarter, beverages were actually only up three percent. Whereas edible combined edibles, concentrates, and topicals were up uh, over a combined thirty percent. So. It's kind of interesting um, to see. Tilray does still um, shares trade as TLRY on NASDAQ and Toronto Stock Exchange. But this is interesting as beverages were touted as being one of the fastest growing categories originally. So I'm curious, is the signaling changes behind the scenes? Is the beverage space like already getting crowded? You know, is California sober already over? Um, Tilray does still retain Sweetwater Brewing Company and will continue to service craft beer consumers while nurturing and utilizing that consumer base to broaden its offerings without losing any market share. So they're still using the alcohol people to uh, build on that and saying that craft people consume craft uh, beer, I guess, are essentially probably the same kind of people who consume craft cannabis. I don't know. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Here comes the king, here comes the big number one. This bud's not for you. But wiser beer, the king is second to none. Just say but wiser. I know Molson Coors is still participating. Um, they have an incubator called LA Libations um, that's based out of Southern California um, that is still doing and incubating a decent amount of CBD products and, that are doing crossover products. So I, I, I'm curious to see how this actually um, shakes out and if there is a deeper reason on the back end, not not uh, disinterest in the industry, but disinterest in the partnership. Guy, uh, how are beverage sales at, uh, at your store? Um, you know, they, they definitely have tailed off. I think in the beginning, uh, a lot of folks wanted to use them as a you know, oh, we're in a, you know, social dispensary and we should be drinking beverages. The onset time, I think, has been problematic. So I don't think I've ever seen the effects at our lounge of drinks. Um, In terms of replacement beverages, though, I do know a lot of folks who have replaced their, you know, nightly drink with some of these can of beverages, whether it's Desert Storm or Heavy Hitters or, yeah, you know, even the Pabst drink. But we sell them, but they're not as popular as they were when they first landed. 
Maybe COVID didn't help because the parties. It's a bird. It's a plane. Nah. That's just the State of Cannabis News Hour's very own Clark Kent getting high. He's a communications strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Up next, it's Christopher Smith. What you got for us today, my man? <laughs> okay. Took me a minute to stop laughing. Good morning, Rico. Thank you for that. And good morning, um, Susan and Nicole. Good morning, everyone. I started writing the story on Monday. Uh, when I got an email about an article, uh, or about this article, because uh, it suggests ways in which the cannabis consumers have power in this often confusing marketplace. Um, the article is placed in uh, cannabis.net. It was reprinted on Green Entrepreneur um, uh, by uh, my friend Reginald Reefer. Uh, the, the headline is The New Ethical Purchasing Standard Every Marijuana User Should Try in 2022. Uh, the article was, uh, let's see. Uh, I'll try. It, it meanders a bit. I'll try to extract the best ideas from it. Um, uh, quote, what, uh, his quote is, um, someone once told me the only true power that people ever had was where they spend their money. In other words, the consumer's true power lies in their choice of supplier. And the focus of his article is to shop or to choose to shop from local dispensaries and manufacturers instead of big MSOs. And he points out that the big MSOs often sue states that employ the local residency requirement, for example, so they can get even bigger market share. Reefer suggests that we as consumers can and should show our opinion of such court decisions by voting against them with our dollars and buying our weed from locally owned providers. So the article pretty much stops there, but in the email I mentioned earlier, it said the article was posted on LinkedIn and got lots of comments, and it was the email that broadened my thinking on this subject. Readers' comments included stuff you'd expect like environmental concerns, ethical concerns, packaging, carbon footprints, etc. But one thing, check this. One comment asked if consumers should support brands that use female cannabis influencers that strip down to their underwear or less to sell their products. And it then went on a tirade about a brand that has long since been sent to hell called Ignite, which was the seedy brainchild of Dan Bilzerian, who's retreated from the industry entirely, good Riddance, uh, for building a cannabis business or a business around bikini girls and booth babes. So if you see a brand that puts a billboard up with a half-naked hottie and a headline that says nice grass, as Bilzerian did, feel free to ghost that brand. The power of our footsteps and our dollars can make a difference. And it's so much bigger than the indica versus sativa choice. And I wanted to elevate and expand on Reefer's uh, share uh, and share a few other reasons we might shop for purpose, not convenience, and make our dollars matter. I happen to shop at a, a place called Alternative Herbal Health Services in West Hollywood because I know the owner, for example, Jason Beck, and I like him a lot, like to support his business. But you may, for example, want to make sustainable, healthy vegan choices. So you immediately would think of fruit slabs, for example, in Colorado. But how about companies that use sauna packaging, which makes its packaging from recycled ocean plastic and hemp plastic, for example. You may choose sun-grown versus indoor, for example, to support local farmers, especially uh, in Northern California, for example, in the Emerald Triangle area. You may want to support uh, women-owned, African-American-owned, Latina-owned, uh, Native American-owned businesses. There's 64 and Hope in Los Angeles, Cali Bueno in uh, Oakland, Gert Earth Hemp Company in South Dakota, for example, owned by the Cheyenne Tribe. 
describe. There are many choices to be made. You can find them online. Um, you may want to choose uh, veterans' causes, like our friend Sean Salvaje, for example. There's Hellman Valley Growers Company in San Diego. They donate 100% of their profits to veteran causes and research. There's Warfighter Hemp in Colorado, Ananda Farms in New York, Mary Palmer in Massachusetts, and many others. You may like a company that is community-minded, like Haven uh, in Southern California, or Urban Leaf, for example, or Poppin' Barkley, even. Um, there are lots of ways that we can let our dollars mean more in 2022, so let the market hear our opinions, and like to hear what you guys all think. Well, I think we need to get your list on the newsletter today, so let's do that. That's a great list. Thank you, Christopher. I've got links. Great, Christopher. I've got links to all of them. Yeah, baby. Links on links on links. So I'm, I agree a thousand percent that we should not be um, over-sexualizing cannabis, but I do also believe and agree with the fact that sexuality is a beautiful thing and that completely muting it is not um, going to be the right answer either and that there is a place and a space for heavily sexualized things and there, as D. Sugar Copeland easily often likes to say, you want to fuck with your cannabis too. And so when we're having that conversation, there is a very sexual connotation with it. We don't need to have the asses hanging out at the booth but it is important for us to understand that sex still does have a place so don't completely shit on it unless that's your thing because that's gross but do it anyways shout out to germany oh, shout no. out to fucking with why germany rico what? <laughs> <laughs> because that's where the poop porn comes from susan God, you're so cute nanogram <laughs> all right we're done with that headline thank you so much for that christopher and yes we will have a full list of everybody um and nobody send uh susan any links of shiza porn please uh up next we have kira court he is the co-founder and president at papa and barkley and our legacy legend what do you have for us today Guy? thanks nicole good morning uh rico good morning susan uh today Coming out of the Sacramento Bee, Gavin Newsom gets behind marijuana tax reform signaling change to the cannabis industry. I'm already excited just saying that, just even the thought that somebody's looking to help us. Facing a possible industry revolt over California cannabis tax structure, Gavin Newsom on Monday signaled that he is open to rethinking the taxes, the state level, the, the taxes at the state level on marijuana growers and purchasers. The governor included in a budget proposal he released this week that he supports cannabis tax reform and plans to work on the legislate with the legislator to make modifications to California's cannabis tax policy to help stabilize the market. Newsom's budget projects that the state will collect $787 million in cannabis revenue during the 22-23 tax year. Of that budget, an estimated an estimated $595 million would be available for substance abuse treatment, cleanup of illicit cannabis grows, and support of public safety. Um, you know, the article goes on to note it's been a bumpy road since 2016, which I think many people know. Um, part of the reason why we need reform and one of the other things that Newsom said is that his goal is to get these municipalities that have basically uh, not embraced cannabis to quote unquote wake up and realize that this is a great opportunity to get rid of the illegal market and the illicit market and provide a regulatory framework for the legal market. Um, so it does seem like Mr. Newsom is starting to really uh, hear that uh, this needs to happen. Um, the article goes on to say that um, Elizabeth Ashford, president, uh, vice president for communication of ease, uh, and also used to work for Governor Jerry Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger is quoted as saying that 
Lieutenant, the, the, the governor, Gavin Newsom, and his advisors know that they can't let the legal market fail. Ashford said in an interview that uh, it's extremely important that steps that the state government can t- are taken and these steps, and they need to take these steps. So in short, you guys, there's a couple of rallies happening here. One's tomorrow, January 13th. Another one's January 26th. Michael Steinman's founder of uh, Flow Cannabis, one of the largest cannabis brands in the state, applauded Newsom's comments and invited him to come down uh, with cannabis entrepreneurs and advocates at a pair of planned rallies at the Capitol to hear our thoughts. And he said, quote, we are grateful to the government that the governor has heard the cries of large and small business owners, farmers, employees, patients, and consumers about the dire state of legal cannabis in California. The legislator, to the legislator, we now ask that you hear our cries to join us on January 13th and 26th as we share our stories at Sacramento's Cannibals Capital Steps. This article, as a business owner in California, is refreshing because it did feel like uh, Sacramento had forgotten about us and it just kept getting more onerous. Tax reform, I think it's like economics 101 for us. You lower the tax rate, you grow the marketplace. Most times when an industry is starting, people offer them to come for free, to create jobs with no tax burden. Meanwhile, we're in the opposite boat with an extreme tax burden. So I'm happy to see that rational thought is finally coming to Sacramento. And my personal fingers are crossed for Gavin Newsom to get something done because any points on that tax package will be very helpful to providers like myself. This is uh, Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you, Guy. I, I tend to give Gavin Newsom a hard time, but I had the weirdest dream about him the other night. Um, I dreamt that we were backstage. He was about to go on, and he was sitting in one of those metal folding chairs, kind of leaning it up against the wall, and he was had his head against the wall, and he was closing his eyes, and he was all red and sweaty and exhausted, and I just can't even imagine uh, what he's been going through, but come on. What happens in California matters to the rest of the fucking world. Let's get it right. So true. Yep. I have a question from that, Guy. Um, so you mentioned that that lowering that tax rate would encourage participation. And I'm just curious, you know, after so many years have uh, have passed, do we think that the, li- the unlicensed market is going to participate in the licensed market if the tax is reduced? Is that kind of the, the crux of it? Well, look, with respect to my traditional market, brothers and sisters, yes, if we lower the tax, everybody wants safe access. Like, I like the guys that come to me on their bicycles back in the day and so on. But the reality is, is it's much easier to go into even, as gross as this sounds, a MedMen-like store as a consumer. Safe access, being able to have clean, tested products readily available at a storefront like any other product is what I believe we should be aspiring for consumers. But consumers also are budget conscious. And so as long as we have this, whatever it is, 28% total excise tax, it's better to get it from some guy on the street because you're going to get sometimes better quality and definitely more value for your dollar. So I think it is on the state. The only way we can com- combat and, and get folks in the traditional market to, to participate is to essentially push them out of business. And while I'm conflicted on that, I do think it's the best thing for the consumer. They need to have a bong fire at the Capitol and uh, burn up some unsellable cannabis. <laughs> Burn it to the ground. Deschedule or bust. (laughs) 
So he's the founder of Deliciously Vegan and Kosher Treat Fruit Slabs. But don't let his signature breed, <laughs> signature beard, and aviator specs fool you. He's also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney with an all-star client list. And he'll sue the shit out of you if you slip up. Up next is Brandon Dorsey. What you got for us this morning, my man? Uh, thanks for having me today. I have a big headline from Hemp Industry Daily. Oregon State researchers. Hemp-based compounds can prevent coronavirus from entering human cells. Yes, you heard it here. New research from Oregon State University has identified two cannabinoid compounds that show an ability to prevent COVID-19 from entering human cells. Richard Van Bremen, a researcher at the Global Hemp Innovation Center, led the study where he and six other collaborators found that cannabinoid acids CBDA and CBGA bind to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, blocking a critical step in the virus's process for infecting people. Cannabinoid acids from hemp were found to be allosteric as well as orthosteric ligands with micromolar affinity for the spike protein. The team also screened a range of botanicals used as dietary supplements in this study, including red clover, wild yam, hops, and several species of licorice. The spike protein is what existing vaccines, boosters, and antibody therapies target. Disrupting this protein can frustrate the disease's, pro the disease's progression through your body. And in virus neutralization assays, CBD, CBGA and CBDA prevented infection of human epithelial cells by a pseudovirus expressing the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and prevented entry of live SARS-CoV-2 into cells. CBDA and CBGA were found to be equally effective against the COVID-19 alpha and beta variants. Bremen noted that, quote, any part of the infection and replication cycle is a potential target for antiviral intervention, and the connection of the spike protein's receptor binding domain to the human cell surface receptor ACE2 is a critical step in that cycle. That means cell entry inhibitors, like the acids from hemp, could be used to prevent cov 2 infection and also to shorten infections by preventing virus particles from infecting human cells. They bind to the spike protein, so those proteins can't bind to the ACE2 enzyme, which is abundant on the outer membrane of endothelial cells in the lungs and other organs. That's the end of the quote. Compounds that block virus receptor interaction have helped patients with other viral infections, like HIV and hepatitis. CBDA and CBGA have potential to prevent and treat infection by SARS-CoV-2, although the acids are produced by the hemp plant as precursors to CBD and CBG, which are different from the acids themselves. CBDA and CBGA can be taken orally. And Bremen noted the data shows CBDA and CBGA are effective against the two variants they studied, and they are hopeful the trend will extend to other variants. The article notes that resistant variants could arise among wider cannabinoid use, but that a combo of COVID-19 vaccines and CBDA and CBGA treatments should create a more challenging environment for COVID-19 to survive. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. This is a huge story. Looks like this, this story is going to get legs. Um, I'm sure that we'll be covering it again. Uh, does anyone have a burning comment before we end the show? I don't know why I have feedback. Acidic, acidic, acidic cannabinoids are much stronger and bioavailable than the decarboxylated form. And, you know, plants don't have uh, legs to run away from their predators. They make these um, phytochemicals, cannabinoids and terpenes, to fight them off. And if we eat more plants, we bolster our own immunity.
Thank you for that headline and analysis, Brandon. Everybody click on the link and read the story, or you can just go Google it. Everybody's covering it. It's great news. I wonder what it's going to do to stocks. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts and on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that make this show possible. Thank you, Nicole and Rico and Liz for co-producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. And thank you, audience, for attending every day and making us the stickiest news show here on Clubhouse. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.